This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Happy Monday, everybody. Uh, Guy is not with me today. We'll hear from him later in the show. He is on assignment. Uh, But let me get you just caught up in some of the big stories here. So overall, you have a little bit of weakness in European equities, um, but the real drama is in the bond market. Uh, Bond market selling off quite aggressively. Uh, German bond yields jumping a whopping nine basis points. Italian BTPs up by nine. A couple things to take you through. And we're going to talk about this over the next hour as well. Spanish CPI actually jumped to 5.8% in January. Oh, yeah, right. We forget. Prices can actually go up as well as down. And at the same time, Germany's economy shrank by two-tenths of 1% at the end of last year. That was also surprising to the downside. Um, We get some job cuts coming from Royal Phillips, a medical equipment maker. Uh, What else we got? We got Ryanair uh, dropping, even though its outlook was in line with with, uh, their own estimates. So we'll get through some of these stories over the next hour. Um, I'm pleased to say that for most of the show, um, Marcus Ashworth will be playing the role of snarky UK commentator. Marcus, welcome. <laughs> How you doing? I'm, such ch- I'm very well. I'm, I've got nothing but positive things to say today. Oh, no, don't don't go with the crazy. I mean, prices yeah, can go prices can go up. Did, did we remember that? They can go up as well as down. That's what's crazy. Yeah, especially they're rigged by the Spanish government. Oops, did I oh, just say that? He made it 20 seconds. Okay, we're going to get to all of this. Uh, and, and I should tell you that I love Marcus and I love Snarky. So just to put that out there. And like I said, Guy will be joining us later on in the show as well. Let's get some headlines here now with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you very much, Marcus. UK firefighters have grow- voted to strike over pay and conditions, adding to a snowballing wave of industrial unrest that has swept through the UK workforce. Some 88% of the 30,000 firefighting staff represented by the Fire Brigades Union across England, Wales, and Scotland voted in favor of striking, that according to a statement today from the FBU. In Northern Ireland, 94% of members voted for strikes. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says he cannot raise UK taxes to fund pay rises for workers in the state-run National Health Service. Sunak is grappling with how to bring to an end a series of damaging strikes by NHS workers, while at the same time shielding Britons from the biggest squeeze on the cost of living in decades and keeping a firm grip on the nation's finances. And Britain's soaring wage inflation is likely to push the Bank of England to another sharp increase in interest rates this week. Investors and economists expect the UK central bank to raise its key rate by half a point to 4% on Thursday. That would mark the highest since 2008 and the quickest string of hikes in three decades. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. So, okay, we get that Marcus is skeptical on that inflation rate. But Marcus, what do you make of this uh, bond sell-off that we're seeing? Bond yields up 10 basis points? Well, it's all about debt, I think, uh, as increasing debt, as in everyone wants to try and um, raise debt from the centre and indeed um, Hmm. combat uh, the IRA uh, bill in the States by allowing everyone to fudge various different things that were were allegedly for the pandemic or what have you. So it's it's the pushback, I think, from uh, the German um, 
finance minister essentially saying that, uh, hang on a second, just because a couple of countries have agreed something in theory with Brussels doesn't mean we have. Mm-hmm. So it's the usual debate. Um, the Germans will probably give in uh, after a, a, a whole series of rounds of saying no. But in the meantime, it clearly focuses back on, you know, quite what bond yields so low in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, maybe the, the delay of German inflation data for a week, probably just technical. Uh, and of course, the slightly higher Spanish numbers, everyone's just thought, oh, hello. Monday morning, perhaps we should sell something. Um, yeah, it, interesting that they push back that um, inflation read for Germany. Uh, and then just to sort of encapsulate what Marcus is talking about, and then we'll get a deeper read uh, on inflation, is the FT was reporting that the EU is going to plan to hit back at the Inflation Reduction Act from the U.S., potentially looking at um, new subsidies, loosen the rules to support investments into new production facilities, yeah, definitely the tax benefits. Um, also, it was looking at potentially setting up a, a European sovereignty fund by the middle of this year, so all 27 governments uh, to fund state aid. But you can make the argument that France and Germany aren't going to like that. And uh, no shocker there that the German finance minister Lindner spoke earlier in Berlin saying that we must avoid excessive extension of EU subsidies, sees no need for new EU financing instruments. Uh, again, no surprise, but that's sort of the headlines uh, encompassing all of that. Yeah, you did make me laugh there. I think you had the word, used the word France there as well. France I did. And Germany. I did. Germany, yes. France, really? France would be loving it, surely. Um, I'm being very cynical there. No, I mean, clearly <laughs> Germany and some of the uh, more austere countries will be against it. Whether France is or not. It is one of uh, those countries. Remains to be seen. Mm. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. No, I get it. Fair enough. I guess on a relative basis, if you're comparing it to, I don't know, Italy or Greece or something. Anyway, let's get to some of this data here. Um, so Spanish CPI rose to 5.8% in January from 5.5% in December. So Marcus and I are going to kick it around right now with Maeva Cousin, a Bloomberg senior euro area economist. She joins us now. And we also have a German GDP to talk about. But let's talk about this inflation. Marcus is super skeptical about it. What are the details within this number? Hi. Uh, hello. We don't have a lot of detail, unfortunately, with a preliminary estimate. So it's hard exactly to know what happened. Uh, we had expected a decline, largely driven by energy prices. It could be that energy prices didn't fall as much as we were anticipating. That would explain part of the story. Um, it's also possible that the, so the Spanish government cut, did cut the uh, sales tax on food prices for, from January. It could be that there has been less fast food than we were anticipating. And the other news uh, is that we've seen some increase in fuel, in whole fuel, in pump prices. We knew it was coming because the tax, some tax cuts has, has been removed. It could have been increasing by more than we were thinking. And finally, we've seen this increase in clothing prices or a smaller decline than usual in clothing prices in January. Overall, I think the story is that clearly there are upside risks to inflation in Europe, especially to core inflation, so the underlying pressure, pressure is still strong. Uh, we get France tomorrow. Unfortunately, we won't get Germany tomorrow, as Marcus has reminded us. So we'll see uh, what's, uh, what's in the box for France and what that could tell us for Euro-area inflation coming out on Wednesday before the ECB meeting on Thursday. So, maybe from what I understand, and please absolutely correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, around uh, springtime, uh, Spain essentially did a number of measures which, in effect, took a while to work through the system, but were, were basically were capping um, the cost of energy, perhaps because it's coming from their own sources, gas, what have you, rather than uh, necessarily reliant on, on the outside, um, like Russia, so much. That, that kept, uh, the last two or three months, Spanish inflation surprisingly low. And maybe now we're just seeing some of that 
either correct or, 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 or have already worked through the system. But in essence, we shouldn't worry about Spain too much because they are probably in, in well, they certainly are, are lower than most of the rest of Europe. So we should probably look through this number. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Indeed, you're right that they introduced this um, price on gas used for producing electricity. Um, in any case, it has introduced sometimes some volatility on exactly how it's passing through to electricity bills. So it's a fair point that it's actually not super easy to know exactly from one month to the next how much uh, Spanish households are going to pay on electricity. But overall, you're right that it has kept prices much lower than in some other parts. Yes, I think we can... Um, I wouldn't say we will look for it. I think mm-hmm. we need to understand what's coming through. But definitely, uh, we can't judge everything on a single number. And we still see some um, decline in energy prices generally in Europe to 2023. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still skeptical. I mean, you see gasoline prices, for example, starting to rise here in the U.S. I'm just saying. Um, let's go to the German economy for a moment. Um, so the economy shrank two-tenths of one percent at the end of last year. Does that make a recession much more likely? Because the narrative last week was that Europe's going to avoid a recession. So it makes a recession in Germany more likely. We had expected, because uh, as the German statistics office, actually, we had expected that uh, GDP would flatline at the end of 2022. Uh, It contracted slightly. We still see some more weakness uh, in 23. So we currently forecast minus 0.1%. That would be a technical recession for Germany, but a very shallow one. Um, for the Europe area, we have the numbers coming tomorrow. We have uh, our current forecast is 0% growth, so flatlining again, uh, and some decline in, in 1-2. It's possible that this German number will tip Europe into a contraction, Europe area into a contraction uh, tomorrow for, for, for Q. That could mean a recession, but again, a technical recession would remain, that could still be very shallow. So I think for us, the main picture is one of semi resilient economy in four Q1, Q for the euro area despite the energy crisis, but very uh, subdued growth through 2023 nonetheless. So, Mela, I mean, in essence, um, it seems to me Germany is throwing a lot of money at the wall, uh, maybe upwards of 200 billion euros worth of extra borrowing this year. Um, we know that, that um, obviously, the conversation is going on in the EU that they wish to be more flexible with regards to pandemic spending and indeed raising any more. To your point of uh, of perhaps disappointing growth just in the, in the last quarter, that clearly um, the authorities are ahead of the game of this and they are already channeling to spend an awful lot more on the fiscal side. So you remain reasonably confident that despite a technical recession, maybe between one or two quarters, whatever, that 2023 will show uh, European growth to be better than it would have otherwise, basically because they're just throwing a lot of money at it. Is that fair? There's a bit of putting some money at it, at it, and actually there was some support coming in December in Germany already, and there would be more coming, or actually some new form coming through the first quarter, so they will be helping households and businesses, that will help. Uh, but also we've seen a big decline in energy prices in Europe. Gas prices have fallen from um, 120 euro per megawatt hour to 60 euro, so that's going to help a lot, and I think it's... If everything goes well, it could be that the worst of the energy crisis is over now, at least for this winter. Mm-hmm. And so overall, we are fairly, fairly confident uh, that your area economy can get some growth for 23. Not a lot. So. 
Okay, so wrap this all up for us. Uh, last question. Um, what does the ECB, does this affect or change how the ECB is looking at their meeting on Thursday? No, I don't think that's a big difference. I think overall it shows uh, that there are upside risks to inflation, um, that the overall economy has been relatively resilient, even if not clearly it's not booming, but relatively resilient. So for us, the picture is the same with inflation, upside risk to inflation, especially core inflation still dominating. Mm-hmm. So we see, we see more uh, in- rate increases on, um, on, on Thursday coming. All right. Uh, Maeve Kuzan, thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking to you. A Bloomberg Senior Euro Area economist joining us there. So now, Marcus, I get to turn and interview you. Oh, yes. Yeah. So what are you expecting Thursday? What are you thinking? I think they're going to raise rates by 100 percent. No, they're not. They are going to do 50 basis points. They have if they don't do 50 basis points, it would be the biggest shock of all time. Because totally. They they totally nailed us down on that. Um, I'd be interested to know just exactly how, you know, the conversation switches on to March mm-hmm. and how firm uh, Lagarde has to be in the press conference. I'm sure she'll try her best. She was really the most aggressive I've ever known her uh, in December. She was really punchy, repeating, mm-hmm. you know, significantly. She kept on going on about how much they want to hike and again, repeating this consistency, uh, at least two more. So, um and certainly the, the rhetoric we've had out of uh, the, the back chief is, is essentially, you know, Lagarde has been saying exactly the words he wanted to say. So that's great. It's then switches on to the starting um, QT uh, on the 1st of March. And whether we get any questions on, on that, I don't think we will. It's probably a side issue at the moment. But with the bank, Teltros, that's the targeted long-term refinance operations that basically super cheap loans that the ECB has whisked away from banks or trying to get that back, with those repayments, if they do speed up, they've been very slow so far. They're all due to end by June and QT, as well as these, these mega rate hikes. At some point, um, you would expect to see a bit of a too harsh as contracting of financial conditions mm-hmm. and the effect on growth. Be interesting to see with that, as we've just been discussing the German numbers, whether or not it causes any wobbles in the ECB. I imagine she'll bat them away, though. Yeah, yeah, it feels like. If you do anything but hawkish is going to really undermine that credibility. Um, hey, do you think that markets will listen to the ECB, but not the, while they're not listening to the Fed? Well, I think the ECB is in, is in a dilemma of its own. It mm. was far, far later to the party. They only said the hiking rates in July from a much lower base as well. Um, so they just got further to go because they started so late. The Fed, it really will set the, the tone for everything, though, I think, uh, uh, on Wednesday. If they do do 25, and we get the impression that that is probably it as well, then it makes the Bank of England's job so much easier. And reality, the biggest gain of that will ironically be the ECB, because they may be able to talk tough uh, on Thursday, but when it actually comes around to March, they may be able to get away with doing less. I bet that's what they hope anyway. Yeah, yeah. Talk it up and not have to pull the trigger on that. Um, okay, much more coming up. Um, the one thing we didn't talk about that I feel like is the pink elephant in the room here is uh, China. Reopening, back from their Lunar New Year holiday, kind of what to expect from that. We're very lucky to have a Hong Kong reporter right now in London to walk us through what she's looking at and what to expect. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. Listen to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's off today. He's on assignment. Marcus Ashworth is joining me from London. Wonderful to have him for most of the hour. So I was mentioning China reopening, huge, just got back from their Lunar New Year. Um, growth still relatively muted, but some early signs did show a rise in activity. For example, 300 million trips were made during the holidays, nearly 90% of pre-pandemic levels. That feels like a good thing. Uh, box office figures were a bit higher, topping last year's holiday as well. Restaurant revenue spiked nearly 25% during the festival period from a year ago. The signs, the signs are, are not so terrible. Let's get more detail here. Sofia Ortaikos Costa joins us. She's Chief China Markets Correspondent, um, who joins us in London, actually. Sophia, I was thrilled to learn that you were there and you could actually be in the right time zone to talk to us. Um, when are we going to get a clean read on the Chinese economy? What is it looking like right now? That's an excellent question, and thank you for having me. So the data does the data for the Lunar New Year. This was remember this big the, the big first test really of um, the health of the Chinese consumer in in a post COVID zero world. So there was um, kind of a Lunar New Year travel rush, which many had expected, uh, but trips are still down about forty seven percent than pre pandemic levels in twenty nineteen. So there's still a suppressed consumer. Um, so. It really is a difficult uh, time to to, to, reassess, to really assess how the economy is doing. We're only going to get um, the kind of January, February data um, later in March. That's uh, released by Chinese authorities at the same time. So there is a bit of a lull when it comes to really knowing how, how China's economy is doing. Do remember, though, that the data for uh, December, which everyone expected it to be really, really terrible, that was the last month of COVID zero, that was actually better than expected. But it's not just COVID zero. You obviously also have the property sector. That's such a key. Um, uh, that's a, such a key component of, of household um, assets. Seventy percent of household assets are in the property market. So when we have a depreciating asset, you're not going to go out and and have the revenge spending mm-hmm. that we saw in places like the US and Europe. So signs of life, but still very very cautious. So, Sophia, um, can I just say I, I love your uh, weekly roundup of the 10 most important stories of China, which you send out on Twitter uh, every week on a Friday, apart from last Friday, which I missed because, of course, you were back over here in Portugal and London. But uh, it really is well worth uh, getting. I, 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 I'm sort of going to stop retweeting it because about a thousand people retweet it now. So everyone knows about you. But it's a, it really is a very useful roundup of what's going on in uh, the whole week before in China. So carry on. Thanks, Marcus. Work. I think I think your uh, retweet is probably the most important one. So, so keep oh, I see. Oh my god! Oh, <laughs> I'm retweeting straight away. Okay, fabulous. Right. <laughs> uh, one quick question: It's just that, uh, as you said, that you're still not obviously quite anywhere close to the the full uh, lunar travel, uh, lunar year travel that you'd expect. But what's been the effect so far of of going from zero COVID? to back open again. I mean, obviously, everyone's very attentive. Everyone's using their own brains and maybe not traveling as much as they normally would um, for their sort of understandable reticence. But I mean, as far as the knock-on health effect and, and wider expects, we're not, we don't seem to be getting some of the worst case scenarios of, of mutated variants, all sorts of other things. Does it look like China is going to emerge from this fairly okay? I think there was two surprises here, Marcus, and and, and you're very, you really, um, 
uh, hit the nail on the head there. The, the expectation was that China had really pivoted far too quickly and far too abruptly from COVID zero. I mean, I'm I'm in Hong Kong, and the, and the mindset shift was was so surprising, even for us, you know, and we're quite close, uh, obviously, to, to the picture there. It went from, you know, this is the scariest thing in the world to actually let's move on and this is just like the flu, almost overnight. And the fact that that message was kind of co- conveyed by the central government and people really um, accepted it. I mean, it, it really shows how how tired um, residents on the ground, obviously I'm talking, it's, it's very different in rural areas, but in cities where you have that huge movement of people, um, that, that was really much faster than a lot of economists had expected. And even the health effect, yes, people are getting sick. You know, one key thing here is obviously we don't have the data on that because China stopped mass testing. So we no longer have the real data about how many um, cases there are and how many people are actually sick. So it all depends on um, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the the, the scenes we see in hospitals and in morgues, you know, those, that's, that's the kind of on-the-ground data we're getting. But really, the fact that China pivoted away from COVID-0 so quickly and that short-term pain that economists were expecting hasn't come through mm-hmm. um, is, is bringing a little bit of optimism that actually, you know, the, the, the post-pandemic world will be a bit easier. I would say, though, that this expectation, which is a very kind of US-centric and European-centric perspective of China, and I can say that because I am European, um, you know, is, is that the consumer is going to go gangbusters, we're going to have an inflation problem everywhere else in the mm-hmm. world because China's reopening. That's really not going to happen. The consumer is still struggling. Incomes are not coming up. So that's that's not going to kick into high gear. Well, I think that what you said is so, so important. We are looking at it with a Western mindset. Um, and to the point that the PBOC, what kind of liquidity would they have to pump to get that revenge spending? Because you're right, with the property crisis, a revenge spending might not happen. Is the PBOC going to jump into support at all to help the consumer? I mean, indirectly, of course. That's that's also a great a great question, and and so the kind of stimulus that we saw in the U.S. and and in Europe, you know, that really kind of um, focused on the consumer and essentially filling up your your bank account with free money. That has never happened in China. Mm-hmm. It didn't even happen in 2020. Um, and what we saw in the property market has been a complete, almost a complete 180 degree turn on real estate policy. And yet the market is still in a downturn. Real estate prices are still coming up, uh, coming down, I should say, and sales are still coming down. So that's still a market that's struggling. Um, what the PBOC is doing, and this is kind of a favorite word that the PBOC uses all the time, which is reasonable liquidity, maintaining reasonable liquidity, making sure the financial system, the banking system has the kind of cash it needs to keep, um, you know, keep the kind of machine running, really, um, and making sure that credit growth does pick up because credit growth wasn't, um, there was no credit growth essentially in, in the latter half of last year. But that was a demand problem because nobody wanted to borrow households and businesses. Mm-hmm. Why would you borrow uh, in a COVID zero economy? So when it does reopen, that is stimulus in itself. So the PBOC is unlikely to pump more liquidity mm-hmm. in the system before it sees what, you know, what kind of uh, recovery we're seeing from COVID zero. Sophia, great stuff. Sophia Horta Costa, thank you for joining us. More next on The Fed. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAP Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. And Marcus Ashworth joins me over in the UK. Guy's on assignment. We'll hear from him in just a little bit. It's just past 5.30 on this Monday. We made it through day one on a very, very busy week. You had the Fed, BOE, ECB, Jobs Friday, a lot of other data coming out and a huge amount of tech earnings. Um, Markets don't look that good, though. Equity markets weren't that bad over in Europe. Here in the U.S., it's pretty painful. The Nasdaq is down by 1.3%, but that is off the lows of the session. Um, Volume is pretty much going nowhere fast. Uh, The bond market's selling off. That feels like a Spanish inflation European story. U.S. bonds down in sympathy. Uh, Idiosyncratically here, Johnson & Johnson apparently cannot use bankruptcy to resolve more than 40,000 cancer lawsuits over its baby powder. Um, This is according to a three-judge panel over in Philadelphia. Um, They have argued, the lawyers for the cancer victims argue that J&J wrongly put its uh, specialty-created unit under court protection to to block juries around the country from hearing the lawsuits. Apparently, they can't do that. That stock is getting hit. All right, that's a snapshot here. Now let's get some more uh, headlines with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Firefighters voted to strike over pay and conditions, adding to a snowballing wave of industrial unrest that has swept through the UK workforce. Some 88% of the 30,000 firefighting staff represented by the Fire Brigades Union across England, Wales, and Scotland voted in favor of striking. That, according to a statement today, from the FBU. Now in Northern Ireland, 94% of members voted for the strikes. A key power cable linking Britain and France has been used at full capacity for the first time since a fire shut it down in 2021. The cable's return is a boost to the country's power supplies in the middle of winter, even though the season has so far seen relatively mild weather and demand curbs ease pressure on their strained grids. 888 Holdings shares plunged 70 at 27% today in London, the most in more than 16 years after its CEO stepped down amid a probe into whether some of the British gambling group's VIP accounts violated money laundering policies. And Air France's uh, KLM's French arm will be cancelling one in every 10 short and medium haul flights tomorrow because of a national strike to protest against pension reform. France's SNCF railway operator has also flagged disruption is to come across its network. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. So we already kind of touched on the ECB. We talked about China. Let's get to uh, what we're going to see with the Fed. So the Fed kicks off its two-day meeting tomorrow. Um, Joining us here, Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Okay, Mike, it feels like 25 is a done deal, correct? Yeah, pretty much. Um, There's some arguments that maybe because of... uh, the Fed wants to get to 5%, and it might get harder to do if the data keep coming in strong. That They might do 50, uh, but they have gotten kind of out of the business of surprising the markets. So I don't think we're going to see that. Right. So uh, Mohamed Al-Aryan, um actually wrote, I think, pretty much what I was thinking, that the risk here, I mean, everyone knows that 25 looks pretty nailed on, mostly because there hasn't been the pushback against the pricing. And we know, as you said, how the Fed works and rolls these days, it it, it really does want to steer uh, either via certain newspaper articles or indeed their own speeches, but it does tend to steer uh, quite clearly. But I mean, if there were a risk, it would be that they might do 50 um, and be a bit more punchy against 
perhaps the unwarranted easing and financial conditions they're trying to battle uh, battle against and also perhaps the fact that the back end of this year those naughty money markets are starting to price in rate cuts which surely must drive them insane <laughs> i'm sure it, it it does make them a little crazy but the problem with the uh, expectations and um, the financial conditions situation for the Fed is that uh, the, the idea that the conditions could loosen and that interest rates can go lower in the, in the markets is kind of based on the idea that uh, the inflation rate is going to come down, whether it's recession or whether it's because the Fed is being successful. And therefore, the Fed doesn't need to have rates where it is. So Jay Powell can stand up there and tell the markets we're going to keep rates around 5% for the rest of the year, but there isn't anything that's really going to make the markets believe that. It'll be a case of me thinks he doth protest too but much. why? <laughs> isn't the whole thing, okay, I feel like I grew up in finance learning don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed. Oh, well, that changed. <laughs> I'm not, what's interesting is, uh, and, and I don't, me, Marcus has an idea about this, but I'm wondering where that originally came from because until 1994, you didn't know what the Fed was doing. So how could you fight the Fed? But somewhere in there, that uh, axiom grew up. And now people are willing to take on the Fed. Uh, they could be wrong in the long run. In the short run, so far, it has paid off. Yeah, it's just quite a dramatic uh, turnaround from the, the speech that uh, Powell gave uh, at Jackson Hole, where you know he scared the living daylights out of us all. It was a, a short, very punchy, right at it speech. You know, things have dramatically changed, and I, I guess it's this, it's this the welter of sort of news, particularly on the housing market, which you know we know that housing inflation comes through very slow and is very sticky, and clearly that's the one thing they're worried about. But um, and on the don't fight the Fed bit, I mean, you know, I, I still feel a bit nervous about fighting the Fed, but I, mean, I just think it's it probably comes from the global financial crisis when they, they just did so much and, and turned everything around that everyone realized that, um, you know, that they do have an awful lot. And certainly to the pandemic, where we now know they did far too much. So there you go. Well, the, the pandemic was a very unusual situation, and it leaves the Fed and most economists in a very unusual situation where none of the old models can be said to work. I mean, they may work, but we don't know. Mm. And that's uh, one of the issues that they're having here is they've been successful in so far bringing down inflation to a certain extent. The question is, will it come back? And we saw Australia have a Spain. You know, surprise, mm -hmm. Spain have a surprise uh, bump up. And there are certainly forecasts that the U.S. will see the same thing because it isn't going to be smooth. It's going to be one month you might get a little lump higher. And, uh, well, it does so sort of take out, though, the conversation that inflation could fall fast. Well, it doesn't mean all of a sudden we're going to go back up to like go to 10 or something. No, but it it's going to make the Fed nervous if inflation starts to go back up again because historically they've blown it on on that mm. a couple times. And they don't want to do that. They want to make sure. So they're going to raise rates again. Then the question is, do they uh, stop? But their basic for 2023 strategy is hold rates high. Uh, if they need to cut, they could cut. But uh, they yeah. they don't let them go down because they're not convinced yet that, that uh, this is permanent. So a couple of things. I mean, firstly, I guess all talk of changing the inflation target from 2% has sort of died. It was a, a bit of a thing back in the end of uh, last year. Um, I was quite into it for a while, but now I've, I've, I've chucked those flares away out of my cupboard. But uh, the other thing really is is that do we really think the Fed will be able to keep rates on hold for the, the 
the vast majority are, are, and into 2024. Realistically, our markets just don't work like that. They always push and either rates going up or they're going down. They, they can't handle them being flat. I think the Fed would tell you, and at this point, I don't have any evidence that they would be wrong, that yes, they can keep it all the way through 2023. Now, the question is, will they want to? They want to now. Yeah. They want to tell you that now because they don't want the markets to start repricing immediately for rate cuts. But mm -hmm. uh, we may find, as Alex mentioned, that inflation goes down faster than thought or that uh, we go into recession and they have to cut. Yeah. But that's a decision for later. Right. But then we're in a recession and that's not pretty. Mike, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Marcus, I'm going to let you go unless you want to talk about Ford. So instead, I'm going to let you go. Have <laughs> a great night. <laughs> thank you for joining yeah. me. I'll be back. We're going to talk about Ford and tech earnings coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Um, one of the really interesting moves today came from Ford. Stock is down almost 2%. But Ford is slashing the price of its electric Mustang Mach-E by an average of $4,500. Now, some are saying it's in response to Tesla and their own recent price cuts on its EVs. Others are saying, well, it's the Inflation Reduction Act. They have to be below a certain threshold to qualify for the subsidies. Either way, it gets really interesting as to the why behind this. So there's really only one guy to talk to, and that's going to be Ed Ludlow joining us uh, from San Francisco. Ed, what was your bigger take the biggest takeaway from these Ford price cuts? Probably both that, you know, this is literally a response to Tesla cutting prices right as well. But when you we talk about how across all the versions of the marquee, it's a $4,500 trim on average. Actually, the sort of biggest cuts were at the higher end models. So the GT extended range drops by $5,900. That's probably a clue that Ford also did this with the IRA in mind and making sure as many of their electric vehicles as possible are eligible for that $7,500 federal credit. I just love that the Inflation Reduction Act could actually yes. reduce prices. Like, duh. Like, when I saw that, I was like, oh, duh. Literally, of yeah. course. <laughs> I mean, it goes to a much broader point, which is affordability, right? You know, that electric vehicles, Tesla in particular over a number of years, but, you know, the entry-level models that Ford has are expensive, you know, the average American family can't afford simply, mm -hmm. you know, forty-five to $50,000 for a car. And also many families need a bigger SUV, right? So I, I get your point. And, and clearly, I think Ford and Tesla are thinking about that as well, because mm -hmm. why do you cut prices? Well, it's a lever to, to find more demand, isn't it? Um, okay, I agree to that point, because I only have a few more minutes. So I want to do sure. a hard pivot do to it. earnings. We're doing it. Um, well, I guess, you know, semis are used in cars. Uh, so NXP Semi is going to report aftermarket today. Um, and then we get Samsung on Tuesday. What are you going to be looking for in this? Because I, I, I just, I love that we've learned again that semis are cyclical. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, Chip, the chip sector traditionally has gone through boom and bust cycles. Boom when the consumer is really strong because the end markets that these semiconductors and chips go into are really strong, like personal computers, desktops, consumer electronics like smartphones. And then they go to bust when the consumer's weak. In times of recession, they don't buy fancy gadgets. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, a year ago, the industry and, and the, the investors and the analysts following the industry were telling us that those days were over. We were going to have multiple years of expansion uh, because 
because the world around us is more technological. And, and actually, it's, that was just completely false. We have gone back to boom and bust. And the reason that it's important this week is largely Samsung Tuesday night um, because of memory chips, uh, mm-hmm. DRAM and NAND. And Samsung's already given us a profit warning that spells actually things are not good, demand's not there, but the industry wasn't ready for it. So there's a huge inventory glut that they'll have to work through before orders come back. Well, can we say that it's just false or that it's just delayed? Like that the pandemic delayed this real big shift, this this structural shift in the semi-world? I think what's worried the street and worried investors is there were clear signs the consumer electronics market was hit, fine. Then there were signs that data centers and servers, that corporate demand for those end products was starting to drop off fine. The saving grace was the automotive industry where very basic processors, embedded processors, analog processors were still in demand because there was a shortage of them. Now there's evidence that that's kind of thinning out. The demand is thinning out as well. It's widespread. And so it's difficult to uh, say that actually this is just short-term demand drop and supply glut and it will work itself out by the second half of this year because it's so widespread. And Mm -hmm. you ask yourself, well, why is it so widespread economic downturn globally? We've got like 30 seconds left. Sure. A lot of tech names coming out. So many. Which one are you most excited about? Probably Apple, because we'll Mm -hmm. see if Apple defies the drops. December, the worst month for the stock since May of 2019. Broadly, we expected just an earnings drop, right? 8% year-on-year drop in EPS for the tech sector broadly. The question is, which companies and which names surprise us? Uh, Microsoft did not surprise us. The outlook was weak, and, and that was worrying. And then what's baked in? Uh, I think all this really interesting. Ed, amazing. This is your Super Bowl week. So we are going to have you on probably every day. And I wish you good luck in staying awake for it. Um, Coming up, we're going to talk about uh, planes. Guy will be here on the show. Also, Ryanair stock closed down over 2%. We'll get the why as well. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's in Seattle. He'll be joining us in just a second. Um, Ryanair um, says that their profitable run that they're having could actually continue. They have pretty strong visibility that looks really good. Um, Profit after tax in the fiscal third quarter through December reached 211 uh, million pounds. So all in all, this this was pretty good. Um, Maybe it just wasn't better. The stock closed down over 2%. Earlier uh, in the day, Bloomberg spoke to Ryanair's CFO, and they talked about uh, how Ryanair stacks up against the competition and how they can actually raise prices when other competitors might not be able to. We've got the lowest cost of any airline in Europe, uh, 30 euro per passenger X fuel for the first nine months of the year at a time when all of our competitors' costs are rising. And then thanks to the balance sheet that we have, we were able to lock in our fuel at very attractive levels. So that that gives us good pricing power. Uh, And while I think that fares will continue to rise, Ryanair is still the lowest fares in the market. And uh, I think we've seen through the global financial crisis, through other recessions, that people continue to travel. Mm. They don't stop. And in fact, I think you'll see more people traveling in Europe this summer because the dollar is very expensive. It's uh, it's at at very strong levels. Uh, People will stay at home. They'll holiday in Europe. Mm. Equally, I think you'll see a lot of uh, US uh, tourists coming to Europe this uh, summer. So there'll be a lot of demand. 
I think, you know, the, the, the key message to everybody, yourself included, is book early. Book early. Well, I, I'm curious about that. In terms of momentum continuing, how much of what we're seeing now are folks just saying, OK, I think prices are going to rise for the summer. So I've got a book now versus a more steady flow, I suppose, of bookings. Well, there is a steady flow and we're already seeing, you know, good demand into the, the midterm breaks next month, slightly closer in than would have been the case in the past. But Easter in the summer very robust bookings. Mm. In fact, we probably had two or three of our strongest weeks of bookings ever uh, in, uh, in January as people are kind of saying, okay, I want to get out. I want to uh, get the holiday locked away for next summer. They're also very much, uh, you know, they, they remember that last summer they got cancelled out of Gatwick, they got cancelled out of Heathrow, but Ryanair didn't cancel them out of Stansted. So they're again saying, I'm not going to take the risk. I'm going to fly with Ryanair. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm getting good value. And as I said, book, book as early as you can. Um, airports are still a bit of a mess. Uh, I, I haven't been on a flight in a while that hasn't been delayed. It's air traffic control strikes. It's still labor issues within airports themselves. How does that affect you? Well, I think you put your, 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 your finger on the nub of it there when you mentioned air traffic control. Airports have improved significantly. They had a, had a bad start. I think we all agree they had a bad start uh, last summer. But things improved significantly into the peak summer. And indeed, they, they went relatively well uh, through the midterms and Christmas. Uh, air traffic, unfortunately, continues to, to lag behind. Uh, there continues to be staffing issues issues on that front. Uh, French and German ATC, I would call out, particularly as, as areas that need radical overhaul. And I don't think they'll get there uh, this summer, um, but we, you know, we'll continue to push at an EU level. That was Ryanair CFO joining Bloomberg earlier. And now we go to Seattle, Washington, where our own Guy Johnson uh, is joining us because tomorrow he'll be going to Boeing 747 factory uh, in Washington for a really a historic event. Uh, Guy, we miss you as always. Um, First of all, did you have any problems flying? Like, all good? No delays? No one. Actually, listening to Danny talking about her delays, I had a perfect flight coming here. Ah. Took off on time, landed on time. Everything was great. So, no complaints on that front. They knew you were going to report for the airline industry. They just knew it. They're like, oh, let's make sure this flight goes well. Um, Okay, what are you going to be doing tomorrow? What are you doing there? So what I'm doing here, as you say, is that the 747 is going to be handed over the last customer. Atlas uh, Air is going to be the last customer for the 747. This is a this is a cargo plane that they're handing over, but it is the last commercial one they will ever hand over to a customer. They are, of course, building uh, a couple of new Air Force Ones for the president. Uh, but aside from that, this is it. This is done. This was the aircraft that kind of defined global travel. Alex, six billion people have been on a seven, seven, close to 6 billion people. Wow. That's nearly 80% of the world's population. That's really amazing. Does Boeing have it in them for another one of these blockbusters, basically, where we can be saying this in a few decades' time? So that, that I th- so innovation, I want to make this whole conversation. I'm going to talk to Dave Calhoun tomorrow, who is CEO yes. of Boeing. And I want to make the whole conversation about innovation. They, they put this, they put the 747 together really quickly in the late 60s. Basically, Pan Am came to them and said, we need a much bigger plane than the 707. Can you do it for us? And Boeing, which was kind of teetering on the edge of that point, went, yep, we can do it. And they put this team together, they, uh, who subsequently were known as the Incredibles. And they basically, in the late 60s, put this thing together really quickly. Massive, innovative de- design. Pan Am wanted a kind of double-decker, but... But Boeing said, no, what we're going to do is we're going to build a wide, a wide body. So they created the whole concept of a wide body, all those seats across the body of the aircraft. And they, and they did it really quickly. And Boeing has struggled ever since then to come up with this kind of innovation. And I think the real question is, can they do it again? Can they, is the DNA still there for the Incredibles to perform once more? 
and produce another aeroplane like this. And we're going into the green era. Mm -hmm. Boeing has to be innovative here. It has to be. If it's not innovative, it's going to really struggle. So what do you think were the conditions that made it work back then that make it so difficult this time around? So I think that there are lots of things. I clearly, clearly, regulation is a is a massive issue, and the, the, the problems that they had with the seven three seven max do make it hard. The the triple seven X, which is the kind of big new plane that they're trying to produce, has been twelve years in the making. But they did the seven four seven in four and a bit, um, a bit less than that actually. So regulation is definitely making it hard. But there's also I, the, the other thing is talent. How do you keep talent if you're not innovating? I'm standing next to the Amazon headquarters. They're, they're laying people off at the moment. They're laying talent off. Microsoft up the road is laying talent off at the moment. Can they pull some of those people in? Can they become innovative again? They're working on a new plane with NASA, which could replace the 737. But they need to kind of get that process underway. And they don't possibly have the balance sheet at the moment to do that. So there's all kinds of constraints. They've got huge debt payments coming up over the next few years. Is the balance sheet stopping this company innovating, I think is a key question for Boeing. Really, really looking forward to it. I love when you get in the field. It's like, you know, you get to be in your world, you get to talk to all your people. So really looking forward to interview Guy. And I know you'll be joining us tomorrow on television as well as radio uh, to fill us in in what you're seeing. Thank you so much. Good luck with the jet lag. Man, it's a long flight from the UK to Seattle. That's far. Uh, Guy Johnson uh, joining us from Seattle, Washington. Um, that wraps it up for today, but tomorrow we got a lot of stuff. We got uh, consumer conference, uh, consumer confidence data um, coming up. We get bank earnings coming out. UBS will be out with numbers as well. We'll have all of it covered for you right here on the cable. This is Bloomberg.